Me and my friends used to go camp and hike out in northern Arizona. It was usually a big group of 10 to 12 of us and one of our favorite things to do was play tag after dark. The first day we got there it was already getting dark out so we would have to wait until tomorrow to do some hiking. We quickly set up camp and once dark decided to play hide and seek. We would pair off in couples to be safe while the two hunters used walkie talkies to communicate and find us. I preferred staying close to camp hidden, cause 9 times out of 10 the hunters will take off for the woods first thing. Me and my partner were well hidden on top of a hill surrounded by some rocks and dead trees. The hill was perfect because it gave a perfect view of the campground and no one could sneak up on us. Well while we were waiting we saw someone return to camp. Instantly we knew this wasn't one of our friends. The figure was closer to 7 foot tall but looked skin and bone frail. The man either had a twitch or was on drugs cause he kept shaking his head violently. He had something shiny and metal in his hand, it wasn't until he passed a lantern we hung up early I saw he was carrying a hatchet. At that point we were both freaked out. We still had cell service so I got on our group chat and quickly posted someone is at our camp, return ASAP, this is not a game. Knowing they would be coming shortly me and my friend decided to charge at the guy from our hiding place, hoping to scare him into leaving. The moment we stepped out of hiding the man turned towards our direction, as if he knew we were there the whole time. We ran at the guy but he didn't budge or even move. We stopped about 20 feet away waiting for some kind of a reaction from him, but there wasn't one. He stood there with his face blank, watching and studying us right back. My friend yelled at the man, asking him what was he doing, what did he want and so on. The man started to smile randomly as my friend continued yelling at him. There was something chilling about the way he smiled at us, like he was posing for a picture showing the biggest grin humanly possible. Suddenly five of our friends came charging for the camp right at the guy. All of us played sports or were in some kind of lifting so we were all in good shape. But like before it was like the man knew they were there and the moment they gave chase he took off. He was faster than any of us which shouldn't have been possible just by looking at his physical shape. We lost him almost immediately. Just like that it was over and we returned to camp. By the time we got back the rest of the group had made it. We told them about what happened and debated if we should leave or stay. Seeing there was 12 of us we figured we would take turns keeping watch. It was just one guy so what could he possibly do all of us? We started to unwind and hang out smoking by the fire until we decided to pass out. We woke up from our friend AJ yelling outside the tents. It was still dark out and he was keeping watch but something had freaked him out. He said he kept hearing something big moving around the camp just out of his line of sight. We went over to where he heard the noise but found nothing. Once we were sure it was safe we went back to our tents. Just as we all started to get back and the same man from before leapt out of one of our tents. We stood there in shock and terror for a moment to long because before any of us could react the man was running away again. This time he was laughing as he ran. Just his laugh alone sounded hysterical and not deranged. After that we quickly packed all our gear and got the hell out of there. The incident made sure we never returned to the same area for camping. We would still go hiking around there but as far as camping went we wouldn't dare, not again. Not my story but my seniors. Two of them were sending one of my friends that has fallen sick, we all are in the same club and we're having a camp, from a park back to the bunk late at night. Before the camp begins, all of the seniors wore wristbands that were taken from a temple to protect them from any danger, because we never knew what would happen. As they were walking back, they were lost. However, out of nowhere a black dog appeared and started walking in front of them, like it was a sign asking them to follow. They followed, and they did actually went back to the bunk safely. When they looked for the dog after that, the dog disappeared. They even mentioned that the dog was pure black just like a shadow. When my senior looked at his wrist, the wristband was gone. 
Creepy if you ask me. I was out on a routine job patrolling a remote area of the park when I saw it. The small but unmistakable opening of a cave. Since it wasn't on any of the maps and it was my job to check things like that out, I wasted no time in taking out my flashlight and heading towards the smaller, but manageable cave opening that was wide enough for me to step through without having to crouch down. The cave was situated in a clearing close to a pond. The opening was located right in the middle of a wall of sandstone and was fairly unremarkable looking. No sign that it was dangerous or out of the ordinary. Since the opening was barely wide enough for several people to step through, that meant the cave had never been turned into a mine. There was also no garbage lying around or any other traces of recent human activity. So for all I knew, I was the first human being to set foot in this cave and who knows how long. The feeling came with a sense of exhilaration I'd never felt before. So I took a deep breath, switched on my extra strength flashlight, and steadily started walking inside. My first few steps in the cave were beyond cautious. Aside from the fact I'd never been here before, the terrain was very steep. You could feel it slowly descending further into the earth. Since I didn't want to lose my footing and go tumbling down, I kept casting the flashlight beam around. Because despite the intense glaring light it provided, the darkness in the cave was unlike anything I had ever seen before. I'd been in the forest at night many times, but this far exceeded that. This darkness was dense. After enough careful steps, the descent became smoother, and the floor leveled out. The cave floor itself was rough in some spots and smooth in others. You could tell where the elements had weathered away parts of the land and made a smoother path to walk. The temperature had also dropped significantly down here, and I could now see the many impressive stalactites and stalagmites dotting the cave. The rough descent had been replaced by a fairly even path straight forward, but there wasn't a ton of space to walk around here. A small group of people could squeeze through, but no more than that. My boots occasionally crunched on gravel, but apart from that, the cave floor was empty. Almost uncannily clean. Seeing how untouched the cave was, it can't help but make you feel like an insignificant speck in the vast scheme of the universe. The cave was not only far older than I was, it would be here long after I was gone. Especially because the cave seemed endless. The more I explored, the more I got the sense that I was making no progress at all. A look at my watch told me I'd been down there for about an hour when the narrow path opened into a massive chamber and the sight made me gasp. The entire space was filled with water, and the walkway served as a makeshift bridge to the other side. The walls were rough-hewn and jagged virtually everywhere you looked. There had been plenty of impressive stalactites in the cave, but the ones dangling from the ceiling here were massive. So precise and sharp looking it seemed impossible that they had occurred naturally. Some of them were practically touching the water that filled the space. I had no idea how deep the water was, but in the thick darkness, it looked unnervingly deep. The walkway that went from one side of the cavern to the other got rougher here, but it still looked as steady and weathered as before. So, being more careful of where I stepped than ever, I slowly began to cross the cavern. I was almost halfway across when I heard the sound of a rock hit a cavern wall and splash into the water. The sound in the empty space seemed so uncannily loud I almost jumped. Once I was sure of my footing, I carefully shined the flashlight around to check. There was nothing. No signs that anything at all had happened. But on this job, you learn that just because everything looks fine doesn't mean nothing is going on. The hair standing up on the back of my neck told me everything I needed to know. I didn't dare take another step forward. If anything, I was slowly adjusting my footing to turn back around. I was just about to go back the way I came when I heard it. The sound of whispered voices. At first, I had no idea what it was. I hadn't heard a single sound before now aside from my own footsteps. Ignoring the chill slowly washing over me, I slowly began to walk back across the cavern. I'm not sure if it was just my imagination, but as I did, the whispering got louder. 
The creepiest part was how the voice seemed faintly familiar. Not enough so I recognized it, but enough that it was unsettling. The worst part was that I had absolutely no idea where the voice was coming from. The acoustics of the cave made it seem like the voice was both everywhere and nowhere at the same time. I was almost completely across the cavern when I cast my flashlight around and saw it. There, on the left side of the cavern in the middle of the dark water, was a shadow. With my heart pounding in my chest and the grip on my flashlight slick from sweat, I carefully turned and aimed the beam directly at it. The water illuminated was a murky gray, but the shape was as dark as it had been without the flashlight. I had no idea what the shape was. It was completely solid, but it wasn't any sort of animal, and it didn't look remotely human. It just hung there, floating just below the surface. If there had been the slightest suggestion of human activity here, I'd say it was garbage, a blanket, or some clothing that fell in the water. But I knew that wasn't the case. The sight made my stomach clench. But then, with my flashlight still aimed right at it, it disappeared. There was no movement or any disturbance in the water. It just vanished. That was my cue to leave. Once I was safely across the cavern and on solid ground, I ran out of there as fast as I could do to the numerous rock formations I had to maneuver around. It seemed to take an eternity. I periodically checked behind me to make sure there was nothing there, and while there never was, I could never shake the feeling that something was watching me. After what seemed like a painfully long time, I finally arrived back at the cave opening. Then came the difficult task of maneuvering what was essentially an uphill climb. By now I was drenched in sweat and the climb did nothing to help that. But taking care with where and when I stepped, I eventually was standing at the mouth of the cave with daylight coming through. I gratefully walked out into the sunshine and looked down into the cave. As I did, I swear I saw a figure walk past on the cave floor below. But when I looked back, it was gone. Once I caught my breath, I radioed the cave discovery into the station and some other rangers came out to check it out. One of them was my boss, Jack. I told them I didn't see anything, but one look at me and my demeanor told them something was up. Jack was no stranger to the unusual things park rangers can and do encounter on the job. So with him and the other two rangers listening, I told them what I saw and experienced down in the cave. When I was done, Jack sat there quietly for a moment. Doesn't matter if it's 2022 or 1822, things still go bump in the night, he said in his deep, steady voice. I don't disagree. I muttered. I'm sure you don't wait. I won't pretend I saw what you saw, but I believe you saw what you saw. Nature can be, and often is, a very scary place. No kidding. One of the other rangers agreed. There's a reason this cave looks so untouched by people. No sign of animals either? None. Jack shook his head at that. That's the sign something is off. Animals don't go near something, that means people shouldn't either. So we'll mark this cave as dangerous, go back to base, and log the find. Now let's get out of here. I was checking on the animals when the weather radio blared out the tornado warning. I wasn't too surprised there was a large storm over the area, southeast Oklahoma, and there was already an advisory in effect. I closed up the barn door and hurried towards the house, meeting with my kids and my husband. Halfway there are tornado shelters and an old dugout house on the side of a hill from when my family first moved to the area. Tornadoes don't occur often in our area. We got ourselves into the shelter and we barred the metal door. The dugout has had a few upgrades over the past century but the metal door was there from the beginning. My great-grandparents lived in the dugout for five years until they met the Homestead Act requirements. My great-grandpa didn't mind the dugout but my great-great-grandma was a whole different story. My husband keeps the dugout prepared for anything. His dad was a kid living in Woodward, Oklahoma when the Woodward tornado came through. His family survived the destruction but they became preachers of preparedness after that. He made sure that the dugout was stocked with a week's worth of canned food, water, a radio, 
flashlights, and batteries. We never had to use more than the radio and the flashlight in all these years of occasional tornado warnings until this particular tornado that is. About five minutes after we settled into the dugout the wind started picking up outside. We could hear thunder and rain outside the doors. We started hearing the impacts of large hail hitting the metal dugout door. The sound of the wind changed to a roar, similar to a plane about to take off. We could hear the different sounds of objects hitting the door but then we heard a loud crack and a lot of scraping on the door. In total, the entire event lasted maybe 7 minutes, but we didn't try to leave the dugout until the wind died down. My husband unbarred the door and tried opening it, but it would only open about an inch. We could see through the crack that the apple tree next to the dugout had blown over in front of the door. We tried to pry the door open every which way, slamming our bodies against the door but nothing worked. We were stuck in the shelter. We knew at some point there would be people checking on places in the tornado's path so we stuck a piece of wood in the crack of the door to hold it open and got comfortable, prepared to wait. My husband never thought about latrine logistics for if you were trapped in a shelter. When 7pm rolled around we discovered that claustrophobia and panic attacks can strike anyone no matter how prepared you are. We were safe and were prepared physically for a week, but I'm not sure our minds could have lasted a week. We could see it was dark through the crack of the door when a foul odor wafted in. It smelled like a wet dog combined with a male goat and a teenager's armpits. I thought it was an overly pungent skunk and I went to shut the door but I stopped when I heard what sounded like footsteps. We started yelling for help, calling out to whoever was out there but nobody responded. There was a shuffling sound and the smell got even stronger. My eyes were watering as I yelled out and pounded on the door. I heard a grunt before the sound of footsteps and the odor started fading away. The kids asked why the person didn't help us. I didn't know but I told them that maybe they were going for extra help. It didn't explain why the person didn't at least talk to us. The footsteps returned. We yelled and pounded on the door and again no response. The footsteps and odor faded away again. This time I felt uneasy and I barred the door shut. Two times this person came and ignored our calls for help. Something wasn't right with this person. The kids and my husband fell asleep and I kept an ear out for rescuers for a few hours. Around 3 in the morning, my daughter woke up from a nightmare and started crying. I was comforting her when I heard branches cracking and scraping against the door along with grunting. I woke my husband up and we pounded on the door and yelled. We could smell that odor again so we left the door bar just in case. When the noises outside stopped we waited about 10 minutes to try to open the door. This time the door opened enough for us to step out. The trunk of the tree was still laying near the door but there was a pile of branches off to the side. There were a lot of footprints but they were bigger than any foot I had ever seen. We woke our son up and we all left the dugout and headed towards the house. It was still dark but we could see that for the most part, the tornado didn't do much damage. We checked the house. I headed out to the barn to see if the animals were okay. I was about halfway there when I heard one of our hogs screaming. I ran towards the barn and stopped a few yards away. I could see my market-ready Hampshire barrow struggling and screaming while slung over the shoulder of a dark hulking human-like figure. I yelled at the figure to drop my pig and it just turned and looked at me. I shined my flashlight at the creature's face. It had a grayish face with a flat-looking nose. It had thin dark brown hair all over its body and massive feet. After a few seconds, it turned and walked into our cornfield towards the creek and disappeared from my view. I've seen finding Bigfoot so I know what I was looking at. I know it was a Bigfoot. I talked to my mom and she said she had seen the wild people when she was a kid. My great-great-grandpa had installed the metal door on the dugout after hearing stories of wild people in the area but the only trouble they seemed to cause was stealing livestock like what I had seen. We've had animals seemingly disappear in thin air over the years and it makes sense now. By that point, I didn't mind the loss of the pig. The wild people had rescued my family from the dugout. Before I begin, 
I think it would be both necessary and appropriate to give a bit of background information on myself. I am a 34-year-old woman who has been working in the wilderness since I was 18, and who spent my childhood growing up basically off the grid with my family in the middle of the woods. My father owned a logging company in Oregon, and my mother was a very outdoorsy woman who enjoyed the quiet and solitude of living 30-plus miles away from the closest town. Although I have plenty of stories of strange experiences from my childhood, I am going to share some of the things I have encountered more recently during my 16-year, and counting, career. I have worked all over the United States, with pretty much every branch of government that oversees federally owned lands, the National Park Service, U.S. Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, etc., though most of my time has been spent in the western half of the U.S. In all of the positions I have worked, I have spent a majority of my time outside in the wilderness, often either alone, or with a small group of co-workers. For discretion purposes, I won't disclose my exact current job title, but my job duties basically include wilderness surveying, trail maintenance, wildlife management, and aiding in search and rescue. I consider myself a rational, level-headed person, and I don't scare easily. I have always been the type of person to figure out a scientific explanation for everything. However, sometimes, especially when you are out in the wilderness, there are things you see and experience that seem to defy all logical explanation. These are the stories I will be sharing with you. This first story comes from my first summer on the job with the National Park Service NPS, when I turned 18. Now, some of you may know how insanely competitive it is to get a job with the NPS, but my resume was chock full with relevant experience I had gained while growing up, so I was one of the few lucky ones who got a job with them right out of high school. The job I landed was at a historic site in rural northern New Mexico that is important for its Native American heritage. It was an entry-level labor and maintenance job, and I was going to be doing a lot of grunt work, but I was excited as hell for the opportunity nonetheless. The beginning of the summer went by pretty uneventfully. I got to know all my co-workers, heard all the classic scare the rookie stories they tell us newbies, especially ones new to the region as I was, and learned everything there was to know about the local legends and cultures of past and present. As the summer went on, I was assigned more and more tasks, to do the usual wear and tear that comes with the height of tourist season. The days were long and the desert sun is strong, so as the summer progressed and my boss began to trust me more, I would often wait until the sun was beginning to set to do my hardest tasks that would require the most time outside in the desert heat and I would often work well into the night. But, I liked it better that way. Aside from dodging the sun, it was nice to work outside when the park was quiet and void of tourists. Early afternoon one day about mid-August, we had a few hikers come into the office to report that the previous night's monsoon had caused a creek to swell up and the rushing water had done some minor damage to one of the small bridges the park had built to cross the creek. Luckily, the hikers had taken pictures of the damage, so I didn't have to hike all the way out to the bridge to assess it, which was about 7 miles down the trail from the parking lot. My boss put me on the job, and sent me into town to get the materials I would need to fix the bridge, and by the time I returned, it was already late afternoon. My boss gave me the go-ahead to work into the evening instead of waiting until the next morning to begin, and since it was a beautiful, clear day, I decided to bring along my tent and camp out there overnight under the stars. By the time I had hiked all the way out to the bridge, the sun was setting. Even though it was a 7-mile hike, it was all relatively flat, so it went by quickly. The spot where the bridge was at was about 3 quarters of a mile into where the trail enters the base some breathtaking canyons. I chose a spot that was slightly elevated from the creek to set up my tent, just in case it was to swell again from some unexpected rains overnight, even though the sky was still crystal clear. Once my tent was set up, I made a small fire and decided to cook dinner before getting started on the bridge. While I cooked and ate, the last bit of sunlight dipped below the horizon, and the canyon lit up from the glow of my fire. It was a beautiful night, and the moon was almost full, 
So there was plenty of light for me to work by. As I began working on the bridge, I noticed how beautifully the light from the campfire behind me was dancing and making shapes on the canyon walls across the creek, and I laughed briefly at how distorted my silhouette was being projected onto the walls. I started hammering away, and for a while, everything was going normally. However, after about 20 minutes, I got an uneasy feeling, like I was being watched. I stopped for a minute and stood up and looked around, but I knew I was completely alone in that portion of the canyon, so I shook off the uneasiness and kept working. To get my mind off it, I began to hum a little tune that I was pretty much just making up as I went along, and before I knew it, the hammering and humming had replaced any fearful thoughts in my mind. 30 or so minutes later, the feeling like I was being watched returned, although this time it was much stronger. I was due for a break anyway, so I decided to stop working for a bit and return to my campsite to make myself some hot tea. As soon as I stopped hammering, I noticed the canyon fell silent. And I mean, completely silent. There was no sound of bugs, no wind, no anything. The only thing I could hear was the crackling of my campfire and the sound of my own breath and heartbeat. I stood up, and right as I was about to turn to walk back to my campsite, I looked at the canyon wall across the creek in front of me, and I noticed the silhouette of a second figure being projected next to mine. I immediately swung around and looked behind me to see who was there, but saw nothing. I turned back around, and this time saw only my silhouetted figure again and breathed a sigh of relief. I figured it must be my mind playing tricks on me. As I walked back to my tent, I noticed that the usual night noises had returned, and I breathed a sigh of relief. It's all in your head, Kate, I assured myself. When I got back to my tent, I decided that I would just finish up working in the morning, and I climbed into my sleeping bag and zipped up the tent to keep out any bugs. The fire was getting low, and I figured I would just leave it burning overnight so it would be easier to put out in the morning. I fell asleep almost immediately, as I usually do most nights. A few hours later, I woke up suddenly, which was unusual since I am usually a very heavy sleeper. I opened my eyes, and the first thing I noticed was that once again everything was completely silent. Except for one thing, I heard a faint humming coming from close by outside my tent. It was the tune I had been humming to myself earlier as I worked. I turned my head to look towards the side of my tent where the humming was coming from, and through my tent, I could see the silhouette of a person sitting by the fire. I immediately froze with fear, and couldn't turn away. I watched the silhouette for a second, and suddenly I saw the head turn towards my tent and look my direction. As the figure turned, the humming got intensely loud, and it sounded like the humming was coming from inside my own head, and suddenly, the entire campfire went completely out. At that moment, my fight-or-flight response kicked in, coupled with adrenaline from the fear, and I stood up, threw my tent from the ground up over my head, and bolted. I don't think I had ever run that fast in my entire life, and I did not turn around even once to look behind me. I could hear the humming following right behind me until I reached the edge of the canyon where the trail broke out into the open, and as soon as I exited the canyon, the humming stopped. I didn't stop running until I reached the parking lot at the trailhead, and luckily my car keys were in the pocket of the jacket I was wearing. I got in my car, drove off, and left a message for my boss that someone else would have to finish the project the next day. I made my coworker bring my tent back for me, and when I got it back, it had been slashed up like someone had taken a knife to it. He asked me what happened, but I couldn't bring myself to tell him the truth, so I just said it must have been an animal. Needless to say, I never returned to that canyon, and I passed up all future projects that involved that area of the park. That's all for this story, but I'll try to update every few days with another one when I am in town and have Wi-Fi again. Part 2. The second story I'm going to share with you happened in the winter time when I was 21 years old. I was working as a ranger with the USFS, United States Forest Service, out in Arkansas. Winter time was generally pretty slow, but it was hunting season in that area, 
so I spent most of my days indoors issuing permits and answering questions and such. Occasionally, we would get a complaint about hunters, so I would venture out to see as any laws were being broken and give my lecture about hunting etiquette, maybe even get to give out a ticket if I cared that particular day. But, most days were routine, slow, boring, and uneventful. Around mid-season, we started getting weird reports coming in about once or twice a week from hunters about finding deer carcasses that just looked, well, unnatural to say the least. Most of the reports weren't very detailed or thorough, but they all consistently included the fact that there was no blood around the carcasses and no visible wounds, yet it was obviously a predatory kill. One group of hunters went up to one of the carcasses they found and described it as being skin and bone, as if everything inside it had been sucked clean out. The reports all included one other detail too, in each case, the hunters had heard what sounded like a male deer vocalizing mating calls and had followed the calls in hopes of landing a buck for their hunting trophy case. The other rangers and I took note of all these details, and after the fifth report or so we went out one day and canvassed the area the reports were coming from, attempting to find evidence to corroborate the reports we were getting but we came up short. Although these reports were certainly weird, we didn't see it as a potential threat to anyone's safety, so we didn't see any reason to prioritize finding the culprit killing off these deer. However, about a month after the odd deer carcass report started coming in, we got an emergency call that two hunters had been reported missing. A father and son had left their home the day before to go on an afternoon of hunting and family bonding and had failed to return that evening. My co-workers and I all immediately geared up, paired up in twos, and set out in search of the missing persons. Each of our pairs was assigned a section of the forest to search, and my partner and I happened to be assigned the area where the deer carcass reports had been. We drove around to every known parking area to attempt to locate the missing father's vehicle, and at the third spot we checked, we found it. We searched the vehicle, and found a map circling an area that wasn't too far away, and we assumed that was the area the father and son were going to be hunting in. We radioed our co-workers to let them know what we found, and then we set off into the woods to continue our search. We found some tracks that looked like they could belong to the missing pair, so we began to follow those. The trail of footprints lead us for about a mile and a half, where suddenly, they gave way to drag marks. With our alert senses heightened, my partner and I followed the drag marks until we reached a large rock formation with a cave. About 10 feet in from the entrance to the cave, we saw their bodies. Before entering, we shone our flashlights into the cave to see if the predator was home, and although we didn't see the predator, what we saw was even worse, carcasses. Tons of carcasses piled on top of each other, mostly deer, some smaller animals. Luckily, no other humans, from what we could see at least. We entered the cave to retrieve the two hunters' bodies, and when we got close, we noticed that their bodies looked just like the ones we had been getting reports of, skin and bone, no visible wounds, but completely void of all blood, muscle, tissue, anything. It was like someone had deflated them or vacuumed them out or something. We radioed the rest of our team with our GPS coordinates and to let them know we had located the bodies, and we were instructed to wait there with them until the rest of the team arrived so everything could be properly documented. My partner and I walked back out of the entrance of the cave, and decided to sit on a nearby fallen tree to wait for the rest of our team. We talked for a few minutes about what could have done this to the hunters, but neither of us could come up with any ideas. Suddenly, we heard a large branch behind a snap. We turned around, and what we saw, I still don't know to this day what it truly was. About 20 yards from us was this thing. It was a black bear, a big black bear, but something was just off about it. It was more like a large creature had taken a black bear skin and head and was wearing it like a slightly ill-fitting full-body costume. The way it moved and walked wasn't right, it was almost like it didn't know how to properly use its limbs. And then, I noticed the eyes. I don't know what those eyes belonged to, but they certainly were not bare eyes. They were large and white with colored irises, 
like human eyes, but much bigger. We both sat there in shock for a moment, before my partner reached to his side to draw his gun. Just as he did this, the creature stood up on its back legs, tilted its head so far I thought it would have broken its neck, opened its mouth, and let out a call. This, however, was not a bear call. It was a male deer mating call. Right then my partner snapped to action and fired off his gun at the creature. The creature turned away from us and took off on its back two legs, awkwardly lumbering off deeper into the woods. My partner fired two more shots in that direction, I think more as a reaction than an actual attempt to hit it. As soon as it was out of sight, we both sat there in silence for a few minutes. My partner's hands were shaking, and I was too frozen with fear to move. Five or so minutes later, we heard the rest of our team arriving down the trail. They asked about the gunshots, and my partner quickly answered that it was just a bear, and then looked at me, silently agreeing with me that we would keep what we saw to ourselves. Although it was odd to everyone that a black bear would be out wandering the woods when it should be hibernating, it wasn't completely unheard of for a bear to be awoken and go out on an aggressive rampage, so that's what we put in the official report. A couple days after the incident, my partner quit his job, packed up his house, and moved back to where his parents lived in the suburbs. I spent the rest of my time in Arkansas trying to put the incident out of my mind. I never saw the creature again, but every so often, when out on patrol, I would hear a male deer mating call, and I couldn't help but wonder if it was truly a deer this time, or the creature I saw in the woods that day, trying to lure in its next victims. That's a wrap for this one. I have to head out to the woods for work in the morning but I'll try to get down into town in a couple days to update again. I am from Waterville, Maine. Back in the late summer, or early fall of 1971, I was newly married and living in Colleen, Texas with my husband who was in the army. We had a small duplex apartment in Colleen. One night he had duty and I was home alone in bed around 3 am in the morning. I woke up suddenly and saw a black figure standing at the bottom of my bed. It was 8 or 9 feet tall and had huge big black wings and red eyes. I closed my eyes and opened them again and it had moved closer to me on the right side of my bed. I couldn't scream. It was as if I was frozen in fear. I covered my head in the blankets. I was so afraid. About five minutes later I looked and it was gone. It gave me a horrible feeling and I prayed never to see it again. Shortly after this event, I came back to Maine as I was way too frightened to ever stay alone at night when he had duty. I told my mom I had seen a huge black angel that night and she was glad I came home as that didn't sound good. I had never heard of the Mothman but a few years later I came across an article and a drawing of one. Even before I read the article I said wow, that is exactly what I saw in Texas. It didn't have a noticeable neck and its face was like hooded, its wings tucked in on its side but you could tell they were very large. It was totally black except for the eyes were round, large, and red. Lon, I still think of this thing with fear. Personally, do you have any idea what it is? I'm in my 70s now and I am still searching for an answer. When I was around 8 years old, my family was in Pensacola, Florida visiting. We always went to parks, and along the beach there was a federal park that also once had been used by either the Coast Guard or Navy for spotting you boats in World War II. Periodically as we were driving through the park, we saw these bunkers in the sand dunes, some of them had large, you could drive a truck in them, sealed off entrances. We eventually ran across one where the entrance was not sealed off and we stopped to explore. As you stood at the entrance you could hear other voices and sounds, so clearly there was some tunnel connectivity between all of them. My older sister and I walked down the pitch black tunnel to explore it while my parents finished getting my younger, e-babies, siblings out. We stopped oddly and then my sister turned to go back. This was the first strange thing, why we stopped exactly where we did. 
You see my sister walked back but I decided to go forward deeper and literally my next step I fell down a big vertical shaft. Strange number two was that I suddenly caught on something because the shaft went much deeper. I could hear voices way deeper coming from down the shaft. There was no bottom under me, nor was there anything sticking out but I was caught. My sister yelled, and my dad ran down the tunnel to the shaft where it was now apparent a thin piece of sheet metal had been placed over it that I had collapsed. He could not see me, but I could see him. He was literally freaking out calling for me when I called back. He laid flat and tried to reach down to get me, I reached up and could not reach him. He told my mom to hold his legs as he leaned deeper into the shaft, but still no bueno. He told me to try to stand higher and reach him. I told him there was nothing under me but air. I reached as hard up as I could and my dad reached as far down but it was like over a foot or more between our hands. Really strange thing number 3, as we did so I felt something envelop me. Very strangely around my body but very carefully and comfortably and it just pushed me up. It pushed me up to where I could grab my father's hand. Now many of you may question the last, but that is the best way to describe what I experienced. To further that, I could not have stood anyway because my leg was broken, more on that in a second. And furthermore as they were putting me in the car I heard my dad nearly break out in tears telling my mom that he thought I was going to be lost because as best he could tell there was nothing holding me, and his hand was too far away for him to have reached me. He told her he had no idea how I reached his hand. Strange 4. Later at the ER when the doctor went to examine my leg, he pulled off my jeans to discover a perfectly round about 3 fourth circular stab wound into my leg. At first the doctor thought the broken bone must have created it, because there was no hole in my pants, no scratches up my leg like something had gone up my pants leg and poked me. Later the doctor was completely perplexed because the bone was totally stable and at the first x-ray reading it was only a hairline fracture they missed, so it could not have poked through my leg. Needless to say all of it freaked everyone out. I still have the puncture wound scar, one of the few my body has kept as I heal very well and rarely scar. Later the park ranger told my parents that those vertical shafts on average are well over 50 plus feet deep, some closer to 100 and were ventilation. They were smooth walled with no ladders or anything. He did not know how I would have not fallen to the bottom. Me and my cousin were out hunting near Johnson City, Tennessee, and were sitting on the side of the wall of a rather large hollow which consisted of very thick underbrush and lots of evergreen. A larger valley then leads first to a clearing and then on to a supposed old Indian graveyard. All of a sudden we heard the brush in the hollow below rattling and could tell that whatever was making the sounds was rather large. I was armed with a Ruger 10-22 rifle with approximately 150 rounds of ammo ready to go. Under my night vision scope, I could see what appeared to be a man, but upon further inspection, I realized that the man was a creature about 7-8 to eight feet tall, approximately 450 pounds. It was covered with thick black fur and was slimmer than the popular Bigfoot image, almost skinny with a neck. Also protruding on either side of its head were long tapered horns also black in color. On the top of the head also protruded a horn pointing straight up. All horns were approximately 5 to 6 inches in length and were the same dark color as the creature. I was terrified. I emptied a 25 round clip into the creature and then we retreated into a nearby cabin about 65 feet away. The next morning we could not find anything except for lots of spent shell casings and bullet holes on a walnut tree. I thought I had struck the creature several times. Nearby animal traps had been sprung and all the bait extracted. On a nearby ridge, we located a series of tunnels made up of brush and various sizes of tree limbs, vines, and leaves. We thought it could have been the lair of the beast. Well, we weren't going to stick around and find out. We quickly returned home and never went into that area again. I don't know what we encountered that day, but I don't believe that it was of this earth.
On June 3rd or maybe 4th, 2011, I was camping with a good friend of mine. We had hiked approximately 12 miles into the Lost Creek Wilderness area following the Colorado Trail from where Section 4 starts at Wellington Lake Road. We reached what is referred to as the meadow and decided to set up camp for the night. The elevation gain had been significant, and we were beaten. Well, I was beat because I wasn't in the greatest shape for backpacking in the backcountry. We got camp set up, gathered firewood, and ate our dinners of dehydrated mountain house food. As it got darker, we got the fire going and were standing around talking. The sky was super dark, and the only sounds around were from the campfire and our own voices. I remember that I could see more stars than I ever had before. The light pollution was incredibly low. My friend and I were working for an aerospace company and started talking about the satellites we had been building and wondered if we could see any satellites in the super dark sky. We didn't have to wait long. We were able to see one after another. We could see so many, that eventually, the novelty of it wore off. We stopped watching the sky and were facing each other talking about regular life, when out of nowhere, we were completely encircled by an intense beam of light. This light formed a perfectly circular pattern on the ground. Part of the beam was in the trees next to us. But because of the pattern, the light had to have a point of origin directly above us. There was no oval in the beam pattern as if the beam came from a side. It was perfectly centered on us. This beam was probably 10 to 20 yards in diameter. It was incredibly bright. It was a cool white color, like a 5600K LED light. There was no diffusion of light at the perimeter, it was incredibly defined. My friend and I were completely illuminated and were staring right at each other. We just kind of froze. The beam lasted about 2 to 3 seconds. I immediately retrieved my cell phone from my pocket and checked the time. I felt like I should in case we had missing time. The time was about what it should have been, somewhere in the 2 a.m. hour. I do not believe we had any missing time. I asked my friend if he had seen the light, I wanted to confirm that what I had just seen was in fact there and not because I was suffering from a sudden brain aneurysm. He in fact confirmed that yes, the intense spotlight that I had witnessed was real and that he had seen it too. We immediately began trying to explain what had just happened. We yelled out in the darkness, hello? There was no response. We scanned the woods and meadow as best we could by flashlight and could see no one. We both knew that the light came from above. We knew that it didn't come from a flashlight from the side. I think we were just trying to make ourselves feel better about what had happened. Now, during this entire encounter, it had been quiet out there. Just the fire and our voices. No other people, no vehicles, there wasn't even any air traffic. It was just completely, dead quiet. In later years I have wondered if perhaps this was a directed beam from a personal drone. I can quickly dismiss this as once again there was no noise whatsoever. Also, during this time frame, drones weren't nearly as popular or common as they are today. Anyhow, we continued trying to ease our nerves by coming up with explanations that could never be. The best I could come up with is that a bolide had entered the atmosphere and had a trajectory directly above us heading perfectly straight down towards us. Yes, this was an absurd explanation, but I could not, and cannot explain what this light had been from. I am still completely baffled by this. There are times I will message my friend out of nowhere and ask him if he remembers this event. He clearly does remember and responds with something like, oh. You mean that night we got probed? Of course, I remember. The probe talk is in jest, but we clearly encountered something that night. I will forever wonder what illuminated us so incredibly brightly that dark, quiet night. I would love to know, but maybe, it's better that I don't. I was an owner slash operator in trucking. My husband knew I had had a lot of unusual things happen to me in my life. Thank goodness he believed in me, so he didn't criticize me. Here is my story. It was the night of August 2, 2017. We had traveled in separate rigs from Chicago, Illinois, 
and were cutting across this bridge in the boonies. We were about 70 miles west of the city in Lee County, Illinois. It was a low-weight bridge, I don't remember the road name or designation, but instead of turning around and backtracking many miles, he decided that we would cross this bridge. Not liking the idea I agreed and he said he would go first just in case something happened. Okay I said. He crossed the bridge. Now let me say this. It was indeed a small road and after crossing, there was barely any room to turn right and bring the trailer behind you and not hit the side of the cut. Okay, so after he crossed safely he said be careful. The road is barely there and a really tight turn. So I followed and I spoke to him over the CB and told him that he was right and that was tight. That is when he asked me if had I seen that thing on top of the bridge. He told me, I don't see how you could miss it. It was like some big being of some kind in a crouched position with really big red eyes glowing brightly, I joked with him, that is why they call me a detective because nothing gets by me. I was joking but knew he didn't joke about this kind of stuff. So he described it again as a large person or human-like shape sitting on top of this bridge with red glowing eyes. He was serious. Now I don't know if this thing was warning us or protecting us but it happened and that is that. In this memory, I am sitting in front of the TV and it's a hot summer night. We didn't have air conditioning and all the windows were open. I was watching TV alone very late, and the house was very quiet. This in itself was strange because my parents did not allow us to watch TV late, even in the summer. It was also next to impossible to be in any place in the house without a crowd, because I come from a large family, and the house was always noisy. I remember having a strong feeling to look outside. I went to the front door and looked out the screen. I saw a large dark vehicle parked outside. It wasn't right in front of our house but was closer to an empty house. I couldn't see the make of it, it was black, and the windows were too dark to see inside. It looked like a gangster car out of maybe the 1930s. I thought it weird that it was parked on our street, but some of the guys in the neighborhood were into muscle cars, so maybe it wasn't that weird. It was very quiet outside, and there were no lights at the neighbors' houses. The night air reminded me of how it feels right before a thunderstorm. Suddenly, I'm in the car. But oddly, the light is on inside, and there are a number of people with me. We are sitting in rows of seats, and there is a yellow-orange light filling the vehicle. I look around at the faces in the car, but no one is looking back at me. They seem familiar, but not like relatives. The vehicle appeared to have a large number of us inside, maybe 15 to 20, but the inside was not that big. Suddenly I was aware that the vehicle had been moving, although I couldn't feel anything at all. Soon I realized we were stopping and at another house. I remember standing inside as a tall thin figure held the hand of a person in pajamas leading them out of the room. Two people were sitting on a couch watching TV, as I stood there, but they seemed in a daze, totally indifferent to us being there. Then I was in the vehicle again and we were sitting inside very still. Somehow, I was able to look out the wall of the vehicle and saw we were moving over a grassy area that was very muddy. It was very dark outside but it smelled like muddy water and it occurred to me that we were near the river. There were no buildings around us, just overgrown areas of trees and grass. I saw some cattails in some gorges under us. There must have been streams off of the river. At this time of the year, you would often be hearing the crickets very loud at night, and see the fireflies all over. But it was dead silent, and I didn't notice any of the fireflies around. The vehicle was moving, but not rolling like a car, it seemed to be hovering above the ground. I turned from looking outside to looking back inside and realized there was a front seat to the vehicle, and there were two people sitting in front. All of a sudden, one turned and looked back at me, and it was a beautiful golden-haired child. He couldn't have been more than a year or two, wearing a diaper. He resembled statues of the baby Jesus I have seen in church. There was a warm glow about him, and I remember the curls touching his pink rosy cheeks. He was talking to us and some of the people next to me, 
seemed to relax and a few sighed. But as I was sitting there, I thought something was wrong. Something didn't feel right. The words he was speaking were in my head, but they were bothering me. The sounds bounced around my skull and echoed giving me a headache. For a baby, there was something cold and distant about him. I shook my head and looked at the figure speaking. There was a fuzziness in front of him. It was like a television screen in front of him that was losing its signal. I reached out to touch him, and he backed away. As the image flickered in front of me, I saw another figure. It was small and brown, and the head was a weird shape. It had large eyes, wider than long, and ridges around its eyes like oversized lids. I had a frightened thought that something really terrible was standing in front of me. The face of the baby Jesus stabilized and I felt my body go cold. Baby Jesus looked deeply into my eyes leaned toward me and I broke loose and punched it in the face. I didn't think about punching it, I seemed to do it instinctively. I think I saw a flash, and then I must have blacked out. I guess I forgot about it, until a few months later. My family drove down to a riverfront park to celebrate some relative's birthday. I was walking on a path close to the river and could smell the strong smell of the muddy water. I glanced around and saw a bunch of cattails. Suddenly, I remembered it, the gangster car, the yellow-orange light, the people watching TV, the baby Jesus, the strange-headed being, and the punch. I never told anyone about this event. There were so many things about it that were too ridiculous. In 1971, I couldn't make any sense of it or place it in any category if I tried. I have never considered it a dream, because it was too real. I have other strange memories about the house I grew up in, but many are not as vivid as this one. I recently moved back into the house, and I started thinking about this event again. I don't really know what to do with the memory. I made some sketches about what I remember. The baby Jesus figure was like a little glowing angel, but there was something very distant about it. The weird being had a tan, light brown dry skin. It didn't look like any of the gray aliens I've seen in pictures. When I hit it, it was like hitting a turkey, with dry skin. The black car seemed to dip in the back and seemed to hug the street when it was parked outside the house. I nearly died from C-19. For reference, I was, at the time, a relatively healthy 37-year-old male. My recovery is still ongoing. I was on both a ventilator and ECMO treatment, and my oxygen saturation during my near death was anywhere from 60 to 80. 85 plus was rare and a good day. I know how bad that is, I'm an EMT. This terrible low oxygen hell lasted 35 days. During those 35 days, I had dangerously unsafe levels of medicine in my blood, opiates and antivirals, remdesivir, etc. During this, my amazing fiancé, now wife, married that amazing human being as soon as I could stand for a bit on oxygen, did a lot of things to try to reach me, even though she wasn't allowed to visit in person. She recorded herself reading Terry Pratchett, had them play my favorite CD, recorded a voicemail from my father, had them put up a poster of Sabre from the Fate franchise, hung tons of photos and crafts from the arm of the dome light over my hospital bed, among other things. The part that really F.S. me up is that the whole time I was unconscious, I was in a pseudo-reality where I could feel, move, think, and react. It looked not unlike a scene out of Sin City, where everything was a washed-out monochrome except for highlights of red and, rarely, purple-slash-green. The place I found myself was a terrible ruined dystopia, and I mean that in every sense. Buildings were ruined, without water, sewage backed up, trash on the streets in heaping, fetid, rancid piles. The worst part was that I wasn't alone. I was chased by. Well, I still don't know what to call them, to be honest. I've had a little over seven months to think about it, and I'm really not any closer to categorizing them. I recognize these things as former humans, beings that had become grotesque, warped flesh, teeming with cancerous polyps and growths, 
their veins showing in a disgusting bulging black red through their skin, visibly pulsing. Their eyes were feral and sharp, usually with black sclera and red iris pupils, but sometimes a solid black. I don't know well, because the moment I saw them I knew I had to run. The problem was that they were faster, stronger, and more cunning than I, and far outnumbered me. They caught me, and devoured me, rending me apart. My consciousness slowly dissolved as I died under their jaws, claws, and teeth. And then I'd wake up again, sometimes fully formed, sometimes half-mangled still, in another alley next to the trash and filth, and I would stumble, running again. This happened for a month, constantly hunted, to be recaptured and devoured. Often, I had quote forced intercourse if you know what I mean by the creatures, too. I still struggle with what it means. I'm a resilient person, full of gratitude and gladness that I survived, but I never would have if not for my wife. I remember the last run very well, because I was ready to give up. I'd been formed with part of my innards trailing behind me, blown out through my kidney slash low back, and I could feel it flopping on the pavement as I ran. I was running up steps, too, which is where they usually caught me, and I was using a filthy railing to propel myself up. I can still taste the metallic, stale air when I cross to the top, and the way my heart dropped when I saw two huge creatures like the others, not for the first time, but they were much closer. They were more golem than creature, though, and were fighting one another, four arms in each with massive bone blades on their forearms. I remember that to get by them, I had to duck under one, and the wind alone nearly knocked me over. I found a set of two doors leading to a cellar, and rather than risk pissing them off, I went down into that dank cellar instead. The story is already long, but it feels good to write it out at last at least in part, so I'm going to finish it. It was one of those cellars that had the brick glass, where there's no way out and limited light gets in. I was naked, and my feet moved through a strange vicious fluid, which feel very furry and vile on top, but slick and congealed beneath. It soon dawned on me that it was decomposed remains, and as light slowly adjusted I could see human bones in the muck as well. Along the wall were benches, but very crudely constructed, almost primitive, and on them were containers, sometimes junky five-gallon buckets, slick with filth, other times metal bins, a few garbage cans, all neatly sorting various parts of human beings. And then I heard the footsteps, heavy, steady, final. A giant, bipedal creature descended, more intelligent than the others that went on all fours but didn't speak. He had the sort of no-neck shoulders from massive muscle-bound strength, and he had to contort himself to fit into the cellar. Getting past him was out of the question, because even crouched over he filled floor to ceiling. He had a Neanderthal-like jaw, and bugged eyes that were bright and sinister at the same time, and I could feel the sick perversion and murderous intent rolling off of him. It gives me anxiety and chills to even think about it. You've been tenderized enough. I figure it's about time to eat ya. And you won't come back this time, don't worry. And I swear, by all that I can, to the gods, on my dead mother's grave, it was right then that I really was about to give up. I'd thought a lot about giving up prior to this, to just stop fighting and let myself die. I know without a shadow of a doubt if I had, I wouldn't be here writing this. But I heard a voice, odd but familiar, in my head, fight. I grew up trained by my father as a boxer, and nearly went professional at one time, when I was younger and wilder. So I fought. I know what you're probably thinking, that's not what happened. I fought, alright, and I did myself proud. I used my range, my speed and power, my combinations, I used things I'd learned from wrestlers, from BJJ, from Muay Thai, from Aikido, and let me tell you that all of it, as satisfying as hearing the little pops of sound and avoiding him for so long was, it amounted to F all. Eventually, I got tired, and I finally made a mistake, swaying into a duck too soon after a hook, trying in vain to move a creature that only let out a faint grunt of annoyance when I'd hit him. He grabbed me, 
his huge hand clutching me around my upper torso, and squeezed, and my ribs crackled like shattered toothpicks. I would have screamed, but I couldn't. I couldn't breathe, I could only vent foaming blood from my mouth every time he squeezed me in glee. He clamped his teeth into my left arm, taking a huge bite out of it, and it seared like he had molten iron in his mouth. It was and is the worst pain I've even been in. I heard it again in my head, fight. I did. Pathetically, I hit him in the throat, but he wasn't paying attention to me anymore. He was staring off, distantly, like he was trying to hear something very far away. It gave me enough time to wring his thumb, opening up his hand enough so that he dropped me, and he didn't move, so I went by him, dragging my ruined arm through the muck, bounding up those stairs like a skittering prey animal. I ran. I ran through wildly racing streets, coughing blood out my lungs, ran and ran and ran as shadow hands and fleshy fingers pulled along my body, trying to drag me down and consume me one last time. I ran into a ruined Chinatown, the styling of the buildings and awnings eastern, and ran into one of those outdoor markets, the sort with a pergola set up to keep things in shade during specific hours. It was the only clean structure I'd come across. The concrete floor was cool, dry, and tidy, and hanging from the board above me was a little wire and bead tree, nestled in a glass bottle, dangling in front of my face. I don't know how, but I knew then I was safe. I never saw another monster. I explored the ruined city, slowly moving upward, and came across actual people again, though none talked to me. The city was beset with civil riots and police forces in SWAT gear and armored vehicles containing them. I was up across a skyway, walking towards a pretty sunset, when my vision just dissolved. Like a movie crossfade, I was simply awake, and staring at a familiar little wire and bead tree, nestled in a glass bottle, dangling in front of my face, hanging from the adjustable arm of the dome light in front of me, along with more pictures of people who loved me than I can name. From the little end table at bedside, my father's voice was speaking to me. Later, when I was more aware, I would rewind it and hear his message, I'm not telling you to rest, my son. Right now, you fight. You gather up everything inside of yourself, because if you rest, you will die. You gather it all up, and you fight. I still think about this a lot, and about what it means. Every damn day.